0: the time when we await the coming of Christ, um, and Advent can often be quite apocalyptic. The scriptures at the moment for Advent and the lectionary, uh, a lot of them are from Revelation, and it's kind of like cuts against your Christmas carol day, that you're like, kind of going to say about the little donkey. I think it's like the whore of Babylon, like devouring a dragon or something like that. (laughs) This is not quite what we were up for. Um, But um, it gets quite apocalyptic because often what Advent is doing is it is mirroring um, the longing of the people at the time for Christ to come as their liberator into their lives. It is mirroring that with our desire for Christ to return and for his kingdom reign of justice and love to come. Um, so we are waiting on Christ coming, and the passage I want to look at today is from Luke twenty-one five to nineteen, and it is a kind of an apocalyptic passage. Um, it's it's pretty it's pretty dark. I actually Jess messaged me the other day and said for worship, what is um what's your passage? And I sent it through, and then she said, Oh, heavy wee passage, eh? <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, we'll mostly be um, doing death metal worship tonight. Um, <laughs> We didn't know Jess had it in her, but she does. Um, so here we go. Um, Luke 21, 5 to 19. Close your eyes if you want to. Imagine this. this is. Um, so here we go. It's Luke 21, 5 to 19. It goes like this. Some of Jesus' disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, this temple... The time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events, and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will be a testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. So a few things about this passage. Jesus here is talking about this thing called the final judgment um which um, as you know we talk about every week at blueprint um and um it's a day when christ will return and bring his fully realized kingdom and in that moment he will define what is right and what is good so he will define what is righteous and what is just he will end injustice and we actually do believe this is probably one of the weirdest things we believe as christians we believe that jesus is coming back and um, if you don't believe that, you actually say it every week when you're here. You say Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We say that every week in the Eucharist. We believe that Jesus is coming back to earth. That's a weird thing that we believe. Um, friend Mark Johnson from St. Thomas says every time that he's been in a church, uh, in a church these he's kids gets... Too cool or too big. He just preaches the return of Jesus for a while and then it thins right out. Um, It's like one of the the kind of weirder things. So you have 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. This is the King James Version. It says, Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 in the message, this one's for you, Jay, um, goes like this um, says, I can't impress this on you too strongly. God is looking over your shoulder. Christ himself is the judge with the final say on everyone living and dead. He is about to break into the open with his, with his rule, so proclaim the message with intensity. So Christ is coming back to say what is good, what is bad, and to come and expose all falsehood. You know, it says in the scriptures that one day everything that is unknown will be known. Everything will be disclosed in the future when Christ, the good judge, comes And so Jesus says here, my judgment is coming, and people ask him, well, how will we know when this judgment is coming? And he says this, he says, you won't. Don't trust anyone who says it's on this day, or it's here, or it's over there, they're they're cracked. Um, But before the judgment, he says, there will be wars, there will be earthquakes, there will be famines, there will be signs in the sky, and people will be put in prison. So in this passage, Jesus is saying, there is no way you can know when this judgment will happen but I am going to tell you how to live in an unjust world while you await a good and righteous judge. So that's what he says. Because all these symptoms that, that he describes here, the judgment is coming, are all present now, right? So he says the temple will be destroyed. Well, the age of Christendom is over, right? The age of the church being the ruling authority in the world is done. I met some people, some, some lovely people the other day, some Christians out front of parliament who were down there to um, appear to a select committee to get Jesus' name put back in the parliamentary prayer. Now, lovely people, but they don't seem to realise the temple has been destroyed. The day of Christendom is over. We don't have the power anymore, but you know we've always been best when we're powerless. The church has always been best when it's powerless. So the temple will be destroyed. He says there'll be wars and uprisings. Well, Syria... Myanmar, Iraq, Hong Kong, wars and uprisings, right? Earthquakes, natural disasters, Christchurch, Haiti, Japan, famines, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Yemen, people put in prison. Do you know New Zealand has the seventh highest incarceration rate in the OECD? Do you know across the world at the moment, 10.3 million people are incarcerated. Two New Zealands are currently in prison across the globe. Now, for anyone who, who cares about injustice, this is an enormous mental load, right? Like, do you even just feel like when you read The Guardian or something like that, or you listen to podcasts, that sometimes you're just, you're just buckling under the weight of this injustice? Just like it's too much. It's too much. You list those things, Syria, Myanmar, Hong Kong, Christchurch, Haiti, Japan, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Yemen, 10.3 million people in prison across the world. What do you do about it? What do you do in an age of injustice where we await a perfect judge who will put all these things right? What do you do with this level of pain, suffering, and violence? It's overwhelming, isn't it? I feel overwhelmed. I feel exhausted by it. Add climate change to that. The whole world's about to mend. I feel exhausted by it. So how do we, as, how do we live as Christians in an age of injustice waiting for the just judge to come? So, conveniently, three things I want to bring you from Luke Luke 21. Come on. Always threes. So it begins, verse 9. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. When you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be frightened. Jesus says, in light of a world of war, famine and violence, don't be frightened. It seems a little trite to me. Like, it seems a little bit trite. Like when you were, um, I don't know. Like I saw Tim last Friday. Yes. Yeah, yeah exactly like St. Tim last Friday. Um, don't be frightened. Just don't freak out. Yes, there's war going on. Yes, there's violence. Yes, people are dying. Yes, 10.3 million people are in prison. But just don't stress... About it. Don't be frightened. It sounds trite to me. It sounds like thoughts and prayers, Hey, eh? Sounds a little bit like that to me. And the world asks, in a world of violence and concern, and violence and conflict, how do we keep safe? This is a natural question we ask. As in the midst of this, how do we keep safe? How will we defend ourselves from the myriad of threats, threats that we know are in the world again, in a world of injustice? And so I think what we tend to do to defend ourselves, is we enter into an inherently defensive posture in the way that we relate to the world. The church has been quite bad at this, Say, eh? Last night I was playing Dungeons & Dragons. If I'd been playing Dungeons & Dragons in the 1980s, the church had a defensive posture to Dungeons & Dragons. They were quite concerned about it. So we come with this defensive posture... Where we feel that the world is so incredibly fearful and violent and there is so much conflict and so much that disturbs us that we just become afraid and we decide that we must hold everything outside ourselves at bay. And so what do we do? We build our own fortresses. We think the world around us is inherently unsafe. So maybe we build an elaborate house. An elaborate house with a long driveway and a big gate at the front because then no one will enter into your yard. Or we move into good neighbourhoods where we don't have to see the violence. Or we don't have to see the conflict. Or we don't have to see people who don't look like us. And we develop class structures so that we can just ignore the violence or the struggle or the pain. And we erect both literal and social fences between us and the things or the people that we are afraid of. We might collect degrees or doctorates so we can never be wrong. We keep ridiculous amounts of money in our savings accounts while others starve because who knows what might happen and where I might need to protect myself. And we become, in my case, you become good with words so you can never be defeated. You can talk yourself out of anything. We build fortresses. We hold the whole world at arm's length in case it hurts us. We live our whole lives on defence. And it actually is our human nature to it safety. Like, it's not wrong to desire safety. I've been reading this book called Created for Connection by um, Sue Johnson, and, um, and she talks about this. She says, everybody needs a stable base and a safe harbour. Everybody needs a stable base and a safe harbour. Everybody needs to know that there are relationships and places in their life where they are safe. Everybody needs safety. This is a natural desire within us. So, so safety is something humans innately desire and should desire, and yet, we are told by Jesus, in light of war and violence, don't be frightened. In the face of incredibly unsafe things coming towards you and engulfing the globe that you live on, don't stress. It's good. So, here's the thing we need safety. And when Jesus says, don't be frightened, he's not saying, just stop being weak. He's acknowledging, you still need safety. But he says, Don't let your elaborate house, don't let your good neighborhood, don't let your class structure, don't let your degrees, don't let your money be your safety. Let me be your safety and your strength. I know you need safety, but be safe in me. Psalm 18.2. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my strength, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 61.3, For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. Psalm 91.2, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. We are not meant to fortify and defend ourselves against the violent world. Jesus is meant to be our strong tower and our strong fortress. He is our place of safety. And when your identity is in God, you can, like Christ did, go to the cross and have everything taken from you but still somehow belong in the fortress of God. I love this theologian who says "Never once, never at one one on the cross of Jesus a victim. That Jesus was always at home in the fortress of God. Can I invite Hannah up here a second? Where are you? I, I, I want Hannah O'Donovan to come and share a little story. Um, because I, just, I was going to, I was thinking earlier, I am like, oh, I need to share Hannah's story. And then I was like, no, Hannah should share Hannah's story. Um, but, <laughs> Do you want me to ask some questions or will you just go? Yeah, sure. Right. Or can you just go? I can go. <laughs> <one>. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, um, listening, to <laughs> oh, listening to all of that. There's a
1: nice stadium down Listening to all of that, I kind of understand why I'm coming up here, which is interesting. So, um... I'll see you guys next week. Okay, later. Yeah. <laughs> So I grew up in South Africa, um, which essentially, I guess I lived in a lot of fear all the time. And, you know, as Scotty was saying, like we did live in a gated community behind another gate, behind a security gate, behind a door. You know, we live behind all of these sort of false security places and you're still scared. And so I used to have a lot of night terrors and all of this kind of stuff. And, God became a huge part of me being able to sleep at night or feel safe or whatever that might be. And uh, my mum would give me a little card of verses and things to be able to sort of feel safer and have a sort of mantra over my life of God's going to keep me and my family safe and we're going to wake up in the morning and we'll be alive and we'll be okay. Um, and I think I built up a big sort of view of God as like God is this person who keeps you safe and that's going to be all good and it's going to be okay. Um and then moving to New Zealand, I think that whole whole idea of oh God's gonna keep you safe and alive in the morning got applied to a lot of different things. So might be that you're gonna be happy or you're gonna be when you move to this thing, it's all gonna go well and nothing bad's gonna happen, and you know, it no longer becomes your life, but it's a lot of the smaller things in every single day. And that doesn't always happen, like God doesn't always through for the tiny little things and then you, you get sad. Um that kind of really rocked my view of God and how He saw me and kept me safe. It was like, well you're meant to be this person who's keeping me safe from all of this stuff and yet all of this crap is still happening and you know you kind of go through that whole image of suffering and I think that really affected my view of God. And then the um you know sort of trying to think about some some wording. So it was kind of going, okay like, well how can I reframe this to Reinstate my trust in God and think about how I'm not putting my trust into God at the moment. I don't believe that He's protecting me. So how can I reframe that and understand that in a different way to help my view of God? Um. So I guess part of that was we, I first sort of you know that whole like God is the armor, and so I sort of looked into that imagery, and I I've, I've always just not liked it, and I think because it's kind of going, oh, you're getting ready for battle. And I was like, God, I don't want to fight anymore. I want you to fight for me. Like, that's ridiculous. That imagery sucks because I don't want to fight. (laughs) 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 Um, And so we sort of put that to the side. And I was like, okay, what else? Um, And so when I was young and I used to have nightmares, my parents used to put a mattress beside their bed, and then I could go and curl up and, and lie down the mattress and go to sleep, and I'd feel safe because my parents were there to look after me and protect me. And apparently sometimes I would go and sleep on the mattress and I'd be fast asleep or happy, thinking that they're there protecting me, and they weren't even in bed yet. But that really helped me, and that imagery was so perfect, and so I was like, oh, surely that's my imagery for God keeping me safe. Um, And the more I thought about that, I was really uncomfortable and deeply, yeah, uncomfortable with that image, just because I guess God had let things happen to me. I... Had gone and lay on that mattress thinking that God was going to protect me, and he hadn't done everything he, he could do to stop bad things happening. Bad things still happened. So if God can change those things, why didn't he? So that image fell through for me big time again. And I was like, well, clearly God just doesn't care. <laughs> um, but then talking through a lot about my childhood and going and breaking it all down and going, okay, well, we came across this imagery of In my house, we had this gate that separated our bedrooms from the rest of our house and all of our stuff and everything that we owned. And that was that if someone came through the gated community and through the the other gate and through the fence and through this and whatever it might be, that they could take everything we owned, but they couldn't take us, they couldn't get to us because that gate would separate us. That kind of started to form my view of God, that he's the gate, and so everything could be taken from us, but God comes in and he protects us, not from bad things happening, but he protects our soul. He is that gate for us to make sure that we're okay, no matter what happens around us.
0: for Hannah a second um, yeah. um, Lord I just thank you for my sister Hannah I thank you for her courage thank you for her faithfulness I thank you for her determination to find um, words and pictures about you um, that make sense to her and comfort her and draw her closer to you rather than further away Amen Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Isn't like it's like yeah I just think that's such a beautiful picture. So I think the thing is, we actually do, in a time of chaos, we do need safety. Hey, like safety is a human desire, but, but if we are trying to build around ourselves safety without God ultimately with us, then, then it falls down. It says in the scriptures, the perfect love casts out all fear, 1 John four eighteen. So when we have looked upon the face of love, fear pales in comparison, and it's from this place that we no longer need to build a fortress or keep fear at bay through violence or through accumulation. So point one, in a terrifying world, we are called to be a fearless people and we become a fearless people by truly knowing a loving God. Say that again. In a terrifying world, we are called to be a fearless people and we become a fearless people by truly knowing a loving God. And so secondly, we want to look at verse 15. Jesus says, I will give you words and wisdom. As Jesus people in a world of injustice, we are called to wisdom. And in uh, the, the world as it is at the moment, we have equated knowledge with wisdom. We've often thought that they are the same thing. And we think that having vast knowledge means we have vast wisdom. But we know that you can spend three or four hours scrolling your Facebook feed or Googling things or following circles of Wikipedia and you have no more wisdom. You just have more cat videos. That leaves you, you know, more wise. So wisdom is something different from knowledge. And in Proverbs 8, wisdom is personified as a woman, um, which makes sense because um, my wife is much smarter and wiser than me and women mature faster than men too, I think. So, um, so it says, Proverbs 8, wisdom is per- personified as a woman and she's, she's declaring truth publicly on the street corners and at the city gates. It she's up on the city gates, the personification of wisdom. And she gives us an insight into the difference between wisdom and knowledge. She says this, so in verse 823, she says, The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be. So in other words, true wisdom predates any of the ideas or any of the knowledge of humanity. True wisdom predates any of the ideas or the knowledge of humanity. Verse 822 She says, the Lord possesses me, the Lord owns me, the Lord owns wisdom. In other words, true wisdom is owned and created by God. It is not owned by Wikipedia, it is not owned by Google, it is not owned by the latest non-fiction you've been reading, Malcolm Gladwell or something. (laughs) True wisdom is owned and created by God. 18 to 11, better than gold or silver or rubies. And in other words, wisdom is not something you can collect alongside all your other trash. Wisdom is not something you can kind of like build up enough of to defend yourself. It will not be used as a defensive tool. In summary, knowledge is something you can acquire, but wisdom is something you must be given. Knowledge is something you can acquire, wisdom is something you must be given from God. It was before you, with God, and is more valuable than anything you can acquire. We have this passage, uh, Luke 2, 41-52. Um, Jesus' parents, um, a bit neglectful, um, leave him behind in Jerusalem after the Passover. Um, and he's only 12. They just, like, rock out of town, and it takes them a day to realise they've left them behind. It's, like, crazy, yeah. It's, like, a big flip for Mary, who, like, hears that she's going to have the Son of God, and she's. says... And she stored these things up in her heart. And then at 12, she just leaves him in town and walks off. <laughs> You're doing somewhere along the way. Obviously, this kid pissed you off a little because you've, um, you've changed your opinion about him. Um, and so they go back. They find him a day later. And he's sitting on the temple steps. And he's sitting among the smartest scholars and the smartest religious officials they, of the city. And he's totally schooling them. like He's just smashing them. On the, on the Torah and on the, the Talmud and, he, and the prophets. And he knows this stuff inside out. And, and it says this, it says everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and answers. And then it says a little later that Jesus went home and he grew in wisdom and stature. Now clearly a 12-year-old carpenter did not have the time to do all the research he needed to do. To know the Torah and the Talmud and the, and the prophets better than the wisest religious scholars. What we are seeing here is one connected to the father. One who does only what he sees his father doing and we are seeing wisdom poured out into his life. So if you are going to hold strong in a world of war, famine, uprising and fear, you are going to need a higher wisdom than Google can give you. You are going to need a higher wisdom than any podcast. You are going to have to value that wisdom more than your degree, more than your intellect, and more than the opinions of your parents. That wisdom is going to have to be the precious thing that you desire. You know, I see so many of us with the different things that are going on in the world at the moment. We feel so confronted that we just want to do something, and we react and we react out of our discomfort and our pain and we react out of what we see in front of us, but so often our reaction is not helpful because there is no wisdom. It makes us feel momentarily better that we're doing something. But it doesn't provide the healing that people actually need because it's reaction with our wisdom. It's reaction with our wisdom. The knowledge of man will not solve godlike problems. We need wisdom. You know, the other day um, was at... Um, praying through her house, and and um, her friend is um, into some other kind of spiritual stuff, but was kind of like open to anything. And said, "Oh, when your priest friend comes round, can you get him to like do the oil and blessing thing in my room too?" Um, and so we um, we go through the house, kind of putting oil on everything and and, and praying um, Exodus, and and um and we get into her room and. Um, just like going around, throwing oil on the walls and, and blessing it. Um, and, and we come up to near her bed and I just feel this heat come over my ear and down my neck. Um, and I'm like, oh this is strange. Anyway, she comes home while we're <laughs> exercising the house. Um, and um, and so I kind of like I felt so awkward about it that rather than like introducing myself <laughs> in to you, I just let off with with this like um, kind of sense I had. See Dave, have you had a hot ear recently or anything like that? Um, she said, no, not at all. I said, cool, <laughs> I finished my cup of tea, so I left, and that was that. Um, but um, three or four days later, um, she comes to prayers, and she says, oh yeah, she woke up the other morning with this burning sensation in her ear, um, and, um, and she was like, whoa, that guy who follows Jesus came around, and somehow he knew this thing was coming, um, and, and suddenly the, the Christian witness has a credibility that enters into our spiritual worldview, now, I couldn't have known that. There's no way I could have known that. That has to be a pouring out of wisdom from God, right? That has to be a pouring out of wisdom from God. And how much more powerful is that than me getting on Rabbi Zacharias's um, apologetics or whatever and trying to convince her that God is real? You know, anyone who I've ever seen think their way into the kingdom has always thought their way back out again. I'm not saying that it's not good to break down intellectual barriers. I think that can be good. But ultimately, there needs to be something higher. Because if you think your way into God, your mind will always be enthroned above God. And you will think your way out of him again. So we need the wisdom of God. What is wisdom ultimately? What am I really saying? here? I'm just saying, listen to God. Listen to God and treasure the voice of God and what God has to say to you above all the other voices in the world. Let that be the predominant voice that informs how you look at things and how you respond to the pain around you. So, point one. In our terrifying world, we are called to be a fearless people and we become a fearless people by truly knowing a loving God. Point two. In a confused world, we are called to be a wise people. We become a wise people by listening to the voice of God. Third part. Another verse in this passage says, uh, right at the end says, uh, verse 19, stand firm and you will win life. Stand firm and you will win life. <laughs> now, in a world of injustice, in a world of injustice, we as the people of God are called to persevere. To persevere. This is given to us so many times in the New Testament. And our, our picture of perseverance has to be Christ. And we find him in one of his greatest moments of perseverance, in Matthew 26, as he is about to be arrested and killed. And he's in Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 36 to 38, it says this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death stay here and keep watch with me. Now Gethsemane literally means this, it means the oil press. Now now I've actually been to this garden, or at least the the garden that they say is this garden in Jerusalem, Um, and it is this grove of olive trees. And so the oil press Gethsemane is the idea of this fruit being plucked from the tree and being pressed down to be made into olive oil. And so the oil press is where It's the place where the fruit would be broken and trampled, that its fragrance would be released and its purpose would be revealed. So the oil press is where fragrance fragrance is released and purpose revealed. So on the cross, in the crushing and in the pressing of Jesus, Jesus' true purpose as the Son of God is revealed, that he came here to die on our behalf. His true purpose is revealed, not just in his living, but in his dying, in the the pressing. And the true fragrance of God, self-sacrificing love, was released. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what God looks like, what God smells like, above all else, the full revelation of God is Christ crucified on the cross. Everything in the scriptures is summed up in that one moment. The full revelation of God. And this picture of being broken open to reveal our true purpose is littered all throughout the scriptures, and so often, oddly, with a promise of joy after. So Philippians two seventeen, Paul is in prison at this point. He writes this letter from prison, and he says this. He says, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Scotty version. Even if I am being crushed like grapes, I think it's worth it, and I'm joyful because it will produce a sweet wine. The crushing is worth it for what will be released and revealed in my life. Two Corinthians four eighteen. Paul says this: We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed; perplexed, but not in despair; persecuted, but not abandoned; struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Paraphrasing that again, we are in the wine press. We are in the oil press, but it has not broken our spirit because we know Jesus was crushed too. And we know that his crushing brought life. See, in a time of injustice, war, violence, famine, and pain, the call of the Christian isn't to live a life where we don't suffer. The call is not to escape suffering. And this is is big. The call of Christians in a time of injustice and pain is to suffer well. The call of Christians in a time of injustice and pain is not never to suffer, but it is to to suffer well. Our distinctiveness from a broken world is not that we never struggle, but that we are steadfast in our struggling, that we struggle a different way. Stand firm so that you will win life, so that from the heart of despair, war, famine, earthquakes and prisons, we declare, if you put me in the oil press or you put me in the wine press, you're only going to bring out more of the fragrance of Christ within me. And that's what I'm made to do anyway. You know, the stories we have, the most powerful stories we have of Christians are those who have been poured out, aren't they? Our most powerful stories are those of martyrdom. They are the stories of the Wesleyans who sent out the Moravians, who sold themselves into slavery to reach an indigenous people. A life poured out. The call is not never to suffer. The call is that we suffer well now I don't I don't know this fully but I feel like I've occasionally seen a glimpse of this we know many people from this community who have suffered well I am like again and again like just stirred up by the people in our community who suffer and struggle with so much but continually choose to enter back into community to press back into the arms of God we all know the story of Susie, we know what Susie many of us, what Susie has been through over the last 10, 15 years and what has that crushing and that pressing produced but the most beautiful fragrance of Jesus you know when Susie says in the end there's nothing that matters but Jesus we believe her because literally there is nothing else and there was nothing else holding her there. This year for for me has been probably one of the the hardest ever and probably in five or six years I'll write a book about it or something. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But just on the last few days um, we were at the Eucharist on Wednesday um, I suddenly had this realisation of how the crushing and the pressing has begun to release a new part of who God is to me and begun to release a fragrance from my life that I hadn't seen before. And suddenly this place of crushing and pressing in the place of Gethsemane, I'm able to say, well, it's not pleasant, but thank you, Jesus. It is not good, but thank you, Jesus. So it's not a vain suffering. It's the suffering that heals and redeems. So point one was, in a terrifying world, we're called to be a fearless people. We become a fearless people by truly knowing and loving God. Point two, in a confused world, we are called to be a wise people. We become a wise people by listening to the voice of God. And point three, in a suffering world, we are called to suffer well, to release the fragrance of Christ into all the earth. We are called to suffer well, to release the fragrance of Christ into all the earth. Let me summarise those a little tighter. In a world that is fearful, become fearful by knowing Jesus as well. In a world that is confused, become wise by hearing Jesus speak to you. In a world that is suffering, proclaim Jesus by suffering well. So I think there's, um, can I invite the worship team up? There's um, three responses I want to offer to you. How about we stand together a moment? Why don't you close your eyes? I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. Come, Lord. Come near to us. Those of us who are overwhelmed by a world in chaos, come near to us and loosen our grip, our defensive posture. Lord, speak your wisdom into our minds. Speak truth where we have believed lies. Jesus, invite us to walk to the cross as you did to suffer well. As we go into worship, there's um, three responses I wanna offer to you. You can go to the cross in the corner to receive prayer. There's some of you who need Jesus to be your stable base and your safe harbor. You need what, what Hannah articulated. She was given a new picture of God that allowed her to see God as her fortress and as her safety. And there's some of you here who are overwhelmed and you need a wisdom that Wikipedia can't give you. And we want to pray for that too. And then finally, there's some of you who actually, you're in a real place of suffering at the moment and struggle. And you really need Christ to walk alongside you and show you how to suffer well in the midst of this. That a, that a beautiful fragrance will be released in you, that it will not be suffering in vain, but that Christ will be revealed in that. As so we head into worship, I want to read the collect for today, and it says this. Heavenly Lord, you long for the world's salvation. Stir us from apathy, restrain us from excess, and revive in us new hope, that all, that all creation will one day be healed in Jesus Christ our Lord.